You are the source of life eternal. You're the source of everything. By believing in your name, we have life and we have access to the Father. Father, thank you that we can come and bring our request to you. And we right now ask that you'd meet us in this moment, Holy Spirit, that you'd work in us, that you'd open our eyes and more importantly, even our hearts to the truth of the word and that you would transform us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open to uh, John chapter three? We're gonna do the first 15 verses. Yes, you heard that rightly. Somebody else is preaching next week and they get to preach John 3.16. So if anyone ever wondered, do I cherry pick the passages? If I do, I didn't do a very good job, now did I? Um, So Ken Birding's gonna share next week John 3.16 and a few verses after that. We're gonna take the section before. And um, before we jump into the text itself, I just want to ask you to think about something because I think there's a kind of a a theme that's in the background of this whole section of scripture and that is, uh, what is the quality of my belief in Jesus? Not how good is my belief in Jesus, not quality in that sense, but quality as in the the characteristic. What kind of belief is it? Because the reality is the quality of my belief in Jesus has a direct correlation to the quality of my life in Jesus. And a lot of people, I think, have anemic lives in Christ because they have a tame watered down gospel that they believe in. And the gospel is actually really radical. And a radical gospel, if I really believe in it, will result in a robust life. And so as you think about your life in light of this passage, that would be where I would point you. Um, If you want to follow along, we're going to read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
As we're in our journey through the Gospel of John, we're going to begin to see more and more stories of just individuals and as they encounter Christ and how they respond, and they tend to be set up as, as kind of contrasting pairs. So this story and then the next major story, we'll, we'll continue in part of this story for a little while, but the next major story is about a Samaritan woman at a well. Uh, everything about her life screams train wreck. And yet she actually is better positioned than Nicodemus when everything about his life screams, he's got it. He's got it together and he's got it together with God. And yet the point of this morning's passage as we wrestle with it is going to be, uh, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. In fact, we're going to see two things about Nicodemus that we want um, want to take to heart ourselves. The first one is Nicodemus is not good enough. He's not good enough and his gospel is not deep enough. And those where his uh, problems lie, and those are problems that can plague us. But in order to establish that and get us wrestling with that, let's first um, make the point that we should be reading Nicodemus this way. Um, When you read a text that's a, a narrative, right, read it like a student in a film class, not like a moviegoer in a theater. Right? If you go to the movies, you just get drawn into the storyline, and you live in the storyline, and you walk out, and you react to whatever happened. If you watch it in a film class, you do that, but you also have the whole time this understanding, this second level of reading where you're saying, and why did the director do that? And why did the film writer do that? And why did the actor do it that way? Because a test is coming, and the professor's going to ask me those questions, because it's not just how did I experience the film, but what's the point? And in order to understand the stories of Scripture, we have to read them that way. And John has given us a number of things in this passage that help us to say the way to read this is you would expect Nicodemus would be this great hero, and he actually comes up short. That's part of the point. And John has made that abundantly clear a number of different ways. The first way actually starts before our passage. Chapter 3, verse 1 was put in later. There were just words, right? The division was added later by somebody else, broken down so we can navigate around in this kind of setting, right? So let's back up. And actually, a few verses that I left out last week in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In other words... He's doing some amazing things, and they get excited and go, that's really cool. That's got to be a God thing. But in their heart of hearts, they're just impressed with the cool stuff that's happening, and they're not actually open to God. Jesus sees that. And so he's not entrusting himself to them. They're not lined up from the heart. They're open, they're interested, they're excited, but at the end of the day, there's something missing, and that missing piece is actually pretty dramatic. The next verse, Jesus, verse 25, needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. You have to read it that way. He's setting it up, right? He knows what's in the human heart, that there's something broken there. Let me give you an example. Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is actually part of the problem. His heart is broken. It's messed up. 
Even though he looks good on the outside, something's radically off, and don't miss that. John wants us to see that. Look deeper than just the surface. Quite a few years ago, around 100 years ago, I guess, I didn't look it up, but I'm confident in the story itself, um, the London Times asked a number of key uh, thinkers in the British culture to write an essay about what's wrong with the world. And one of the essayists they asked, a great writer, who also happened to be a Christian, was a man named G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote back, Dear sirs, what is wrong with the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That was his essay that he submitted to the London Times. And because he was Chesterton and they asked, he printed it. They printed it, right? He got it. Right? Don't miss the fact that Nicodemus has all kinds of things together on the surface, and you would think he's getting it right, and he gets it almost right and misses by a mile, and that's what John wants us to see in this passage. Another clue he gives us is um, the people in Jerusalem are really excited about seeing the signs, and the first thing Nicodemus talks about is, Rabbi, we know you're from God because we see the signs. Now, they are signs from God, but John's setting it up so we notice that contrast or that, that uh, parallel so that we say, oh, in some way, Nicodemus is like these other people in Jerusalem. Now, he's probably different in many respects, but he's still got this fundamental something on the inside's wrong. The other thing that we see in this passage, look in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Why does he say that? Well, the simple answer is because it was nighttime. So that's why... John said that. Um, but the more complex answer is, why does he choose to tell us that? So, he didn't give us the time. You know, there's so many stories that don't give us those kinds of details. Why does he put that detail in? And uh, people try to figure out, why does Nicodemus come at night? And that's an interesting question, but it's really not on point. There's all kinds of discussion, well, rabbis would argue late into the night, or maybe it's the end of the workday and this is the time to talk, or one that I think actually probably has some merit is Nicodemus comes under cover of night, because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he's part of the Reform Party, he has power, he's part of the ruling council in a sense, their Senate, but they're the minority party. The group in power, the Sadducees, the ones who control the temple, who Jesus is just beaten with a whip. Now, Nicodemus is probably amused at that, probably thinking, go Jesus, right? But getting associated with that when you have to work with these guys is maybe not so helpful. So maybe he's coming under cover of night because he doesn't want to be connected with that in their minds, right? That's one possibility, has some merit. Another one I think has merit and I didn't see anyone else come up with, but I'm convinced it has at least plausibility is maybe Nicodemus is just a night person, not a morning person, right? So you don't have a serious conversation in the morning. Some of us are like sports cars that have been garaged. You get in, once you turn it on, ready to go. Others of us are like diesels that have a glow plug. You have to warm things up before you even try to start it. That's me. I live in a world full of morning people. I live in a household with people who respond better to the morning by far than I do. So, for instance, every morning when I'm getting up and making my first pot of glow plug that I can drink... Um, my daughter may come in who wakes up and is awake, and she'll come in, and there's words coming out of her mouth. There's thoughts, there's ideas, there's sentences, there's concepts, there's questions, and, and she's got all this stuff going, and for me, an eloquent response is, 
right? Come to me after I've had at least my second cup of glow plug and maybe I can talk. Uh, and it's not that I don't get up early, right? We, we, we go to the gym every, every well, several times a week and, and it, class starts at 6 a.m. So we're in the car at 5.45 driving across town and my wife has learned don't ask questions because he can't answer questions and stay on the road at the same time this time of the day. I think maybe Nicodemus is just like me and he just needs to wait until he's awake. That question is actually completely irrelevant. And we, we dive into those details sometimes and we lose the point. Why Nicodemus came at night doesn't much matter. Why John told us is everything. And in the Gospel of John, he makes this strong contrast, this symbolic kind of theme that runs through the gospel day and night, light and dark. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, Satan enters Judas and Judas leaves at night. Right Over and over again, there's this contrast between day and night, light and dark. And so what we have is Nicodemus is literally, metaphorically, in the dark. He's the guy that should have the answers, and he's in the dark. And he's having an encounter with light. And how does he respond? So Nicodemus should be on target, and yet he's not. John wants us to read that into this story. And then as the story itself unfolds, uh, maybe this has struck you before. It certainly strikes me as an odd way to respond. Nicodemus comes in, he says, Rabbi, and that's, that's a real sign of respect. Nicodemus is a very prominent rabbi. Jesus is this young upstart who all he's done is a few miraculous things. John hasn't even told us about most of those. And uh, driven some people out of the temple, and yet because of what God's been doing in and around, Nicodemus says, I, I accept we accept, in fact, there's other Pharisees, most likely, is who he's thinking of. We've been having this conversation, so I've come to find out from you, Rabbi. Um, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him. He didn't ask a question. He's still in the polite preamble. He's still working up to it. Jesus cuts to the chase and says, yeah, 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 yeah. Here's the question that's on the table. Here's what Jesus does. He takes this supposed to be collegial conversation, maybe even resulting in this spirited theological debate, and he co-ops it. He flips it around into a confrontation, a gentle, loving confrontation, but a confrontation of Nicodemus. He doesn't want to have just a conversation. He wants to show Nicodemus, look, there's something really wrong here. So he flips it around and immediately says, hey, here's, here's what you need to know. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, wait, how can that happen? When somebody's old, can they enter into their mother's womb? You know, he's not dumb. He's not stupid. In fact, that's part of his point. He's basically saying, what are you talking about? That is ridiculous. As a rule, almost without exception, grown sons are bigger than their moms. It's hard enough the first time birthing them, right? Nicodemus is saying, this is so absurd. What are you talking about? And we actually see this progression in this interaction with Nicodemus where he goes from questioning to confused to basically dismissing. Every time he speaks, he's going downhill uh, because he's just not getting it. 
right? So, but Jesus is deliberately flipping it around to turn it into this confrontation uh, that points to Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus in verse 9 finally says, how can these things be? And it's not really a question. It's more of a challenge. That's crazy. You're nuts. That's kind of what he's saying. And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness what we've seen. You do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Look, Nicodemus has progressed to where he's just not even accepting Jesus' testimony, even though Jesus is the only eyewitness. Others may say they have special revelation from God. I'm the only one who's actually come out of heaven. I'm telling you what I actually know and you won't even receive it, you're just dismissing it, right? So there's this progression where Nicodemus actually gets further away because Jesus is kind of pursuing him, and his purpose in pursuing him is to reveal his heart and to show him that, Nicodemus, you're not good enough, and your gospel's not deep enough. You know, what you're looking for from God isn't going to work. You need to understand your system fails, you need to blow the whole thing up and wholesale embrace what God's doing. That's implicit in everything that's going on here. And so he's pushing Nicodemus basically into a corner where he has to confront himself. If I ever really encounter Jesus, one of the things that invariably happens is I have to look at myself as I really am. I actually have to be honest. And the deeper I go in relationship with him, the more that unfolds. He's gentle and kind, and he reveals things kind of a layer at a time. But throughout my lifetime, he is, he is exposing more and more of my heart and soul, not because he wants me to feel bad, but because he wants me to be transformed, and it's so easy for me to be going down the wrong path, even as a follower of Christ, to somehow subtly shift where I'm going down the wrong path. Nicodemus is going down the wrong path, so Jesus is pushing him into a corner where he has to confront who he actually is. Nicodemus is coming and asking questions. Basically, Nicodemus is coming to evaluate Jesus. And implicitly, Jesus is saying, you're not qualified to evaluate me, right? If, I, if, I, if I'm telling you things that you at least have some access to, like the birth in the spirit, you can begin to experience here and now, there's some earthly connection point. You don't even get that. How are you going to understand these things that are strictly uh, beyond your experience, right? The heavenly realities, you're not going to get them. You're not qualified. You don't see those things. You don't understand those things. You're not actually in a position to evaluate me. There's uh, two quotes I love from the middle of the last century that um, when you hear the first one, you go, that's awesome. That's like one of the best quotes ever. And then when you hear the second one, you go, ooh. Right, so the first quote comes from A.W. Tozer. It is a great quote, right? I'm not picking on Tozer. He's a hero. But um, he only got this one part away across the line. The quote is this. comes from one of his well-known books. The most important thing about a man is what comes into his mind when he thinks about God. Isn't that cool? It's like, yeah, that's right. Totally cool. Until C.S. Lewis read it and said, what? I would think the most important... Now, I'm paraphrasing Lewis. Uh, I would think the most important thing about a man is what comes into God's mind when he thinks about the man. Ooh. <laughs> Lewis one, Tozer zero. <laughs> There's substance to both quotes. 
But that's actually what we have going on here. We have, let's take what you're looking at and let's go beyond it. You got to go deeper. You got to, in fact, you got to blow up your whole understanding and start over. When we come to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is not good enough. We're supposed to see that. Everything about him says, if anyone ever had it right, this is the guy. Here's what it says about him. He was a Pharisee. So they would have known the Pharisees were the reform party. They were the good guys. They were the ones who said, we're not living for God the way we're supposed to. We're failing at the covenant. That's why we're in trouble. He told us that would be the case. Let's clean up our act. Let's get it right. They took their faith really seriously and tried to get others to do the same. They're the good guys. Almost. In fact, there's more sparks between them and Jesus, I think, personally, because they're almost got it right and missed it by a mile, and nobody else is even in the same zone. They're so far off base, almost no point in talking to them unless they come to him. It's the Pharisees that they have a lot going for them, but at the end of the day, they miss because because they don't get to the heart of the issue, which is the heart. So Nicodemus is this Pharisee, part of the Reformed Party. If you read it at a surface level, you go, he's righteous. He's the one that keeps the law. He's the one that lives holy. He's the one that takes those things seriously. And he's not only concerned about those things for himself, he's concerned about those things for his whole culture. He's seeking to be the change that he wants. Because it says, he's a ruler of the Jews. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's one of those guys because of the place that he is and the opportunity that was afforded him is is using his voice to shape their whole culture. That statement says he cares, he wants to change the world around him, and he's doing something about it. It also says an awful lot about his character and his standing. He's got moral, spiritual, social gravitas. This is a guy that you respect. This is a guy that you trust. This is a guy that you want leading you Nicodemus is a good guy. I mean, if anyone would get it right, it would have to be him, right? And then, skip down a few verses where it says, uh, Nicodemus finally gets frustrated with Jesus. This, is, this can't be. He says, how can these things be? But what he really means is, that's crazy. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things? Now, Nicodemus should have understood them. Not every detail. The gospel was a mystery, but there were aspects of it that they completely missed because they were looking in the wrong place. Nicodemus isn't just some teacher. He's the teacher of Israel. Now, it's not like you log on to the first century Israel website and you see the prime minister is so-and-so, the high priest is so-and-so, the teacher is Nicodemus. Right? It's, it's not exclusive like that, but it's very lofty. It's like Nicodemus, <laughs> Reverend Dr. Professor Nicodemus, you don't get this? And in, in saying that, he's like, you should understand at least part of what I'm getting at. You're hung up on, on this idea of the spirit, for instance, being the source of this change. How does that even work? It's like, it's like the wind, You don't have to understand it or control it to know that it's actually real. Wind and spirit, by the way, are the same word both in Greek and Hebrew. So there's this little word play. And Jesus is saying the spirit does something that is beyond your direct access 
but it's very clear, very real, very powerful. He's the one that does the transforming. Don't freak out when I say you've got to be born of the Spirit like that. Nicodemus, you're, you're missing the point. You're the teacher in Israel. You've got to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Actually, born of the water and the Spirit. They're connected. It's not two different things. Sometimes we read that and we think, oh, that's physical birth and then that's spiritual birth. That's our understanding. That's not the way they would have understood it. They would have understood them together. And they would have understood them parallel. That's in verse 5, right? It parallels verse 3 when it says you should be born again. Literally born again slash from above can be translated either way. And John, who does this, probably means both. Born again from above. It's a new start rooted in heaven, Nicodemus, a radical change that comes from water and spirit. Nicodemus, think about your Hebrew Bible. You can look it up later, but in Ezekiel 36, it talks about at the end, God will do things. And he talks about water and spirit. And the water is this purifying reality that will change you from the heart out. And then the spirit will enliven you to a whole new way. Or the readers of John would have had that in mind. And they would have also had just the gospel of John. You look back to chapter one, to the ministry of John the Baptist, he says, I'm baptizing with water. That's a water baptism that's a symbol for repentance. It's a symbol for you saying, I got nothing. I'm a mess. I need you to cleanse me, God, and make me ready for what's next. That's what I'm doing. Part two of this plan God is launching is the one coming after me. I'm not worthy even to tie his shoes. Who's going to baptize you with the Spirit to give you a whole new life? Nicodemus, you could know at least some of that. may not put the whole gospel together, but you ought to know there's something deeper going on and you're focused in the wrong place. John wants us to read that because he wants us to wrestle with this question. How good is good enough? How much do I have to know? How well do I have to live? How, how focused does my life have to be? How pure? What is God looking for? Because whatever my answer to that is, collapses here. Nicodemus beats me. And he beats you. He knows, he knows more than I do. I know a lot. I know more than most people about God's word, not in this room. There's some of my teachers in this room, but that's the second. Right? It, 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 he knows more than me. He knows more than you. It's not how much do you know. It's what is, what's happening in your heart. Nicodemus knows more. Nicodemus lives a better life. He is more committed to changing the world for good than I am. And I'm actually pretty committed to that. He is more committed to living a holy life, and he's more scrupulous in what that looks like than I am. And I'm really scrupulous, right? Compare my life to Nicodemus. He is the epitome of the Pharisees. He's like the poster child of the Pharisees. And when Jesus says, you want to know how righteous you should be? You got to be better than the Pharisees. He's not saying better than the losers. He's saying better than the best you can think of. That's part of the point here, implicitly, but clearly the point. Nicodemus isn't good enough. 
Don't come to me to evaluate me to learn some new truth that you then take and put into your system and you keep going forward. Your whole system needs to blow up because your morality arrow is pointed the wrong way. So here's a really big place where our gospel can be weak. And if it is, it produces an anemic life. Our morality arrow is pointed the wrong way. One, it can keep me from having life at all. And two, if I actually come to a place where the Holy Spirit lives within me and brings me alive in Christ, and I fall back into that pattern, it robs my life of its power. Here's what I mean by the morality arrows pointed the wrong way, and this is how people would have read it, because of who Nicodemus was and what the expectation would be. The next person actually is a total train wreck, but she's better ready because it goes deeper than just behaviors and understandings. Is morality, in my view, is it an ingredient or a product? Is it an ingredient I build into my life so that I can become what God wants and get into right relationship with him and live the life that's good? Is that the way my arrow is pointing? Or is it a product? Because I have the life of God within me, the arrow points this way, the morality flows out. Jesus says you have to be reborn by the Spirit of God. You can do nothing. Nicodemus, stop. You're not going to get into the kingdom of God walking the way you're walking. And you're at the head of the line. Nobody gets into the kingdom of God that way. You have to be born into it. So many, in fact, all of us, at one point or another, every culture, every religion, every philosophy, every person who's ever walked this planet looks at approaching God at some point as, as kind of a ground-up prospect where I build my way towards I do this, and I do this, and I do this, I add this, I add this, and then eventually I become. Nicodemus is at the front of that line, and that line doesn't work. Jesus cuts off the conversation and grabs hold of Nicodemus, if you will, by the lapels, and he says, listen, you're not going to make it. And John is saying, listen, here's the best that we have to offer. He's not going to make it because nobody makes it that way. How many of us approach life that way? That my standing with God is a one-one correspondence with what I am doing, how I am behaving, how careful I am in my morality, how hard I'm working at my obedience, how much of the word of God I understand. All of those things matter, but we've got to get the directional arrow turned around. Those don't lead me to something. I am gifted something. I am made something, and then those are the way it flows out. Some of us may be here, and we have a relationship with God that we would describe as intermittent, distant, practically non-existent. 
If that's you, let me suggest, first let me say thank you for being here, right? This is, this is in no way a critique. This is just intended to be a help. It's the same help that somebody gave me one day, and I think it's what Jesus is trying to do here. Um, that ain't going to work. Maybe you feel that way because you don't actually have a relationship with God. I would suggest that's probable. You probably don't have a relationship with God because nobody claws their way to or climbs their way to that. It's this, the gospel is revelation, not philosophy, right? It is God speaking in. Jesus comes from God and says, here's reality. It's not just revelation, it's also invasion. He comes from God in a, an invited takeover. That's not where Nicodemus is. And Jesus is trying to shift his perspective. Maybe God's speaking to you right now and he's saying, you know, you don't have a connection. There's no organic relationship here. Please don't try to get there. Please learn from Nicodemus. You won't get there. You cannot do it. He's better than you are and he couldn't do it. By the way, it's very likely, I think, but certainly possible that Nicodemus eventually does get there because through the book of John, each time he shows up, it's more and more positive towards him and towards how he relates with Jesus. So by the end, he very well may have gotten it and surrendered. But here's the reality. A relationship with God comes from an absolute surrender. Water and spirit, I have nothing. I need to be purified and only God can do that. Here I am in my mess. Take me, cleanse me, Fill me with your spirit and empower me now to live the way you want. Grace is something God gives me. It's not something I earn. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what he points Nicodemus to. When he gets to the end, he's actually pointing him saying, you can respond. I will be exalted on a cross and everyone who looks in true faith to me will have eternal life. That can be you, Nicodemus. And that could be anyone in this room. And if you have questions, if God's working in your heart and there's this kind of moment of wrestling in there, please talk to us before you go. Let's, let's have that conversation, help you understand what God's doing in your heart and help you respond. A lot of us in this room have responded, but here's the tricky thing, and the Galatians learned this. It's easy to still flip the arrows. After we have responded to the true gospel of grace, somewhere along the way, we flip the arrows and now we try to live as if I got to claw my way forward. What does that look like? Well, it's subtle because morality does matter. And how much of the word I get does matter. And whether I'm obedient or not does matter. It's a cart and horse kind of thing. What leads to what? And so often it becomes this hamster wheel of performance that I'm going to do in my flesh. I'm going to impress God. Stop. As a child of God, he's already fully in with you. There's absolutely nothing you can do to change that. Stop trying. Not saying give up on morality or give up on the hard work because grace involves a sweaty engagement sometimes. There's struggle to live out the grace God's giving me, but it's going to be his power, which also, by the way, is so helpful because some of us in this room are still on the hamster wheel trying to impress God. Some of us are buried under a load of guilt because it's not working, and some of us have given up altogether because we know it can't work. 
And all of those come from having our morality or going the wrong way. Turn it around. His calling is perfection. And I won't get there in this life, but he gives me grace moment by moment. He's given me his spirit. Stay with it. Don't give up. Don't back down. And when you mess up, own it and move forward. But don't carry the burden as if somehow you are going to impress God or you're going to be the one that runs it across the line. Jesus already did that. The Spirit is now your partner to live the daily reality, right? Nicodemus isn't good enough, and neither am I. Nicodemus also isn't deep enough in his understanding. And just briefly touch on this one. Um, Nicodemus' real problem isn't here. It's here, right? Verse 9, Nicodemus, how can these things be? Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive it. Because of that, you don't believe. And if you don't believe the more simple things... How are you going to believe the more difficult things? It's really a problem here. It's a whole heart, whole soul kind of response. And Nicodemus doesn't just need clarity in his head. He needs softness in his heart. And that's where he's got the brokenness. He's hard-hearted. He can understand more and more and more of the word of God. But unless his heart is soft towards God, it's not going to accomplish its purpose. I was with some people this week who were talking about their own spiritual journey. They came from a background that tended to get, lose, lose footing on the emotional side of things, right? And so they were saying, I, I want to be deeper, and that's what I'm pursuing, because it seemed like a lot of people that I'm connected with in my past kind of lost their footing. They weren't stable enough. Some of you are familiar with that kind of a church setting. It's not uncommon. And I affirm them for what they're doing. And then I spoke back and I said, you know, I understand that actually our, my, Robert's, Robert's background, um, traditions are vulnerable in a different place. See, we're all vulnerable. And our vulnerability is to shove it all up here. Like, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And we reduce belief to this cognitive assent. I know this and this and this and this and this, and I'm in this Bible study and this Bible study and this Bible study, and I have this understanding and this understanding and this understanding, which is important. But if it never sinks through to my heart and changes my life, I'm just as messed up. Some of us get all hung up on experience and we lose our way. Some of us get all shoved up into our head and we lose our way. Some of us become moralistic and activistic and it's just about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and we lose our way. Nicodemus was like me. He was likely to get shoved up into his head. You may be wired differently wherever your background is or wherever your heart is. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you don't receive my witness. I'm the only actual eyewitness, and you're not even accepting, you're not believing, and this is actually your heart. Your heart's not soft. I'm not entrusting myself to people because I know what's in their heart. Not just do you understand, not just are you having this amazing experience, and not are you just willing to go out and do what's right. Are you letting it actually penetrate to the core of who you are and let God speak to the very soul that is in you? Say, God, 
blow up my world and build yours. Nicodemus showing us that. Some of us maybe need to engage that question. I'm resistant to aspects of what God's doing because I've got my own ideas. I don't, there's not enough fireworks, so I'm not going to do that. It's not deep enough. I'm not going to do that. There's not enough activism. I'm not going to do that. It's like, let God be God. Jesus blows up Nicodemus' understanding, and he says, your problem is your heart, like everyone else. Open yourself up to me, and let me define things. Don't you evaluate me. Let me evaluate you. Let me show you what that is and respond to that. Last thing, very briefly. This um, thing that Jesus offers is so much better than what Nicodemus wanted. And it, you see it in the language he uses. He says you have to be born again from above. Right? It's a whole new kind of life rooted in heaven. It's the kingdom of God. It's God's rule in this world. Uh, it's eternal life, which is literally life of the ages. And so they would have heard it more than just, hey, when I die, someday I go to be with Jesus. But it's like, no, there's this whole change in the reality. The new age has come in Christ, and I live a new reality right now. You know, the kingdom of God, it's the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. It's God's rule, and there's always at least four things that accompany that reality. One is intimacy with God. That's what Jesus is offering, intimacy. That's why in the Garden of Eden, which is where the kingdom is planted first, he plants a garden that can function kind of like the temple did. Here's the place where you can daily, intimately, personally connect with me. And then you can go out from here to do the things that I've called you to do. When he calls together the people of Israel, makes them a people, the first thing he does is say, here's a tabernacle. Make this so that you and I can meet because at the center of your life is this intimate, personal, everyday connection that needs to drive things. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's this intimacy with God that's supposed to define us. That's what Jesus is offering, not just a system. It's God's rule in my life and that involves intimacy. It involves shalom, right? The peace of God which isn't just I am free from distress. In fact, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all because we, we don't get a get out of trouble free card, but it, even as we go through trouble, it's a little different. A friend of mine um, was going to surgery, and uh, this has been a number of years ago. He shared this story with me. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the place was full. They had him sitting in the hallway. The nurse came along, looked at him, and was about to wheel him towards the surgery, because it was about that time, and as an afterthought, she said, they've started your anesthesia, right? Because they start with something that relaxes you, and then they do the more heavy-duty stuff, uh, you know, when you're ready. And he's like, no, nobody's been to see me. But he was so at peace, he was just laying there, you know, he's about to have people cut him open and take body parts out, and he just, he had shalom, right? He was, he told me, I was sitting there, or laying there, meditating on a psalm, and it, it fooled her, thinking they'd already given me the stuff to make me happy and relaxed. But that happy, relaxed came from God. Now, some of you would go, that would never be me, because I'm higher strung than that. I'd be like, ah! And that may be, there's nothing wrong with that, because without the peace of God, if I'm leaning into it, it might be, ah! 
There's something that in the midst of the hard and difficult and frightening and tense and stressful that anchors me outside of just that momentary circumstance. That's what Jesus promises. That's what the Holy Spirit provides. When I lean into that, not just a system, not just the new belief or the new understanding or here's the rules, follow them. It's a relationship that changes even how I go through the hardest things. And then the last two are interconnected. There's this meaning and purpose to everything that I do, and I'm blessed to be a blessing. Right? He's got things for me to do in this world that matter for forever. And he's thought of them from before time. Ephesians 2.10. And I get to be a part of that. When he calls me into this relationship with him, it's supposed to change my life now and forever. Nicodemus, you don't just need the latest understanding and you need to know where I fit on your chart. You need me to blow up the chart and say, your approach isn't going to work. You're not good enough. Your thinking is not deep enough. I need to build you from the inside out. You need the purification and the work of the spirit. And I call you now into this kingdom reality where you have this intimacy with my father, where you have this shalom that pervades your life and you have the ability to do things that matter for forever because God will keep blessing you and expect you to spread that blessing with others. How is your belief in Christ? The vitality of your life in Christ is connected to that. Is your gospel anemic? Just this transaction that God takes me out of one category and puts me into another? Have you let him blow up your worldview and say, let me start fresh, build you from the inside out? If you've not done that, you don't actually have life. But maybe you have life and somehow you've flipped your morality arrows around and you're leaning into the wrong things. Nicodemus is given to us as an example. The guy that should have it all together misses it all together. Let's not miss that ourselves. Lord, um, I pray that you'd keep working in our hearts so we would be responsive to whatever you're doing. Maybe some here that don't actually have a relationship with you. You can change that. Would you bring them to a place of understanding, conviction, and willingness to respond? Some of us, Lord, have um, taken the magnificence of your grace and the beauty of a relationship empowered by your spirit, and we've dumbed it down to just our next hard work thing. Um, or we've given up on hard things because we just don't see how we can do it, and we're forgetting the partnership that we have with you. Some of us, Lord, are living our lives for the wrong things, not for the significance and meaning that you've called us to. Lord, you know where each of us is. I just ask that you'd work in us and transform us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.